If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Before we dive into God's Word this morning and study it, would you join with me in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing on us as we study His Word. Father, Your Word tells us in Psalm 119 that the law of Your mouth is better to us than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Father, I pray that today you will so work in our hearts that we together will treasure your word more than anything else, more than gold or silver, more than great jewels, more than money. Oh, Father, work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We will be starting our study this morning in verse 29 of Genesis chapter 49. And we will be going all the way to the end of verse, I'm sorry, of chapter 50. That is, we will be finishing our study of Genesis today. August 2nd. 2020 is when we began this series. This is number 60 in the Genesis series. We made it through the book of Genesis in only 60 sermons, depending on how you look at it. Maybe you don't put the only before that number. But in 60 times together, we were able to work through this time. And just think about what was going on in the world back in August 2020. Gas was only $2.15. How long ago does that seem? We had just come through that summer, so much unrest in our country. Riots, restlessness. Fear of COVID was still at its height. Bitcoin was still thought to be the investment of the future. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Alex Trebek were still alive. A lot has changed in the world. President Biden hadn't even been named as the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. But we have arrived. A lot can happen in two years, including preaching through the book of Genesis. And as our study of Genesis fades to black... Moses brings us to this, he he rehearses two themes that are and have been central all the way through this book that he has written. Promises and providence. Promises and providence. The promises and the the promises and the providence of God. Both of these things have been woven through these pages. In every story, it has been the promises of God which have been motivating God's people and supporting and working behind the scenes has been the providence of God. Directing. We see that coming up again and again as we have closed these, as we have ended our study, Moses ends with those two themes. We read in 
We see this in verses 29 and going all the way to verse 14 of chapter 50, that there is these promises that Jacob is now living in light of, that Joseph and Israel, they are supposed to live in light of, that the people of God are to live in light of. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had made extraordinary promises to Abraham. There will come from you a multitude of nations. It will come from you a multitude of people. Seed. People. Descendants. On top of that, you will be blessed. And those who bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. On top of that, he will give you, God promises to give Abraham a, a land. A place. And those promises have been working their way all the way through this book. And God himself has been seen to be providentially navigating all things. And we see those promises come up again. That those promises of God, land, seed, blessing, is what is motivating Jacob here at the end. And not just Jacob, but Joseph as well at the very end. Well, follow along as I read verses 29, beginning in 29 of chapter 49, all the way to verse 14 of chapter 50. Then he, this is Jacob, he's finally finished blessing his sons. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph, you get a sense of Joseph's love for his dad. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, that's Jacob. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him for seventy days. Now when the days of this mor- of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please, let me go back up, let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And he observed, this is Joseph, he observed seven days of mourning for his father. 
And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. What we see here is this emphasis, this, this desire for, on the part of Jacob to be buried and it's not so much, he, he's not worried about the way he is going to be buried. Buried. He's not so much worried about the, the pageantry or the process of his burial. His concern is the place of his burial. Did you notice there in the first half when Jacob is talking, he continually refers to this specific region and he describes it. I want you to bury me with my father, Isaac, in that cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. So he's giving the field, the, the, the place, the, the, the history of it, the, the region of it. And it's before or east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. Abraham bought the field of Ephron the Hittite as possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. And you get a sense that, you get a, a bit of a reminder. Jacob of his wives, he loved Rachel. And you see that favoritism even here at the last. Leah is buried there, but while Sarah and Rebecca are called the wives of their husbands, he just says, there I buried Leah. You would expect him to say, to continue on, Leah, my wife. But he just says, there I buried Leah. And he goes, this is the field and the cave that is there which purchased from the sons of, Bra- from the sons of Heth. Do you see how detailed he is in this description? It's in this cave, it's in this region, it's east of this place. This is where you will find it. This is the the region and the people that are there. I want you to go and put me there. This, This reminds me of the way parents of young children have to describe where to find something when they're trying to tell their children to get something. You know what I'm talking about? Like moms, when you're trying to get your... Say you're trying to get your, say boys, because I, I only have boys, and boys are the worst at finding things, okay? They just, we are. And wives, you probably know, it doesn't get better. It just, we're bad at it. And you can just imagine, son, I want you to go. My purse is on the kitchen counter. It's next to the stove on the side, the left side of the sink. It's the blue purse. I want you to get that for me. It's right by, you know, the, whatever is there. You can find it above this thing. That's where you'll find it. Bring it to me. And he brings you something entirely different. If you've ever done that as a parent, repeatedly, you know exactly what he's doing here. He is like, look, I want there to be no mistake. I don't want you burying me in some other country. I'm not giving you general instructions here. This is, this is the ancient version of GPS. This, this is him with the British voice telling you, turn left in 200 yards. This, if he had that, he would do it. He is carefully detailing which plot of land they can bury him in. He's not concerned about the pageantry of it. 
This is what I want my funeral service to be like. Doesn't care. Doesn't make mention of it at all. This is what I want my coffin to be like. No, doesn't care at all. Doesn't worry about it. He cares only about the place. I want to be buried there. I want to be buried there. You see, the same concern of Joseph at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 22 to 26. Towards the end of Joseph's life, we, fought, we read these, that he too is about to die, and he, we read these words from Moses. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, which in ancient Egypt, that was like the great life, the perfect, um, the perfect age to live to was 110 And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So he sees three generations after him, which is, again, the perfect lifespan for the ancient world. Joseph is being held up here as the the greatest. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry me up, carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin. You see how remarkable this all is? It, Joseph, in his esteemed life, the end of his esteemed life, he does not care about the honors. He does not care about being, having a permanent burial place along with the greatest leaders of Egypt, which he most definitely would have received. He was loved, beloved. He was considered the savior of Egypt. And he sacrifices all of that for a temporary grave, for a rented burial place there in Egypt. His longing is that his bones will be carried up with the people of Israel when they leave. You can see there's no doubt about that it will be. He is absolutely confident. God will surely visit you. And you will, you shall, you must Carry up my bones from here. This is absolute confidence. God is going to come. He is going to lead us out. And when that happens, make sure you got me with you. And we find that this is exactly what happens. Moses in Exodus chapter 13. I'm sorry. Yeah, Exodus chapter 13. He he makes sure that he has the bones of uh, of Joseph in his sarcophagus. He picks him up and brings him. I I imagine there must have been a, a wooden cart. But for 40 years, they kept him with them. And we don't find until the end of Joshua. In Joshua 24, do they finally bury Joseph. What these brothers, both Jacob and Joseph, show for us is that they are living with an absolute, confident expectation that God is going to fulfill his word. God said, I will give you this land to Abraham. And here, though they are dying in Egypt, both of them are absolutely certain that God is going to fulfill his promise to them. There's no doubt about it. Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob, he is so sure. He says, I want you to bury me there. 
and I'm burying him there. It is as if he is saying, look, plant my body there because that's where we will be. This is the place God has promised us. I don't want to be buried and left behind in Egypt. Bury me where God has promised us. It is the confident expectation born out of a lifetime experience that God is true to his word. Now we can rest everything there. Joseph himself is so certain that this will be so. Though it will take hundreds of years, centuries will pass before it comes. Yet he confidently says, God will visit you. God will rescue you. God will bring you out. And when he does, carry my bones with you. For Jacob, the place of burial in Canaan, the process of burial in Canaan, the whole of Egypt and uh, the whole of Egypt's uh, Pharaoh's servants and all of his brothers and family coming to be with him, save the children. It was perhaps the last reminder, the last visible reminder that they would have of the land that God had promised them. This may have been the last time any of the Israelites for decades, centuries, would be able to go back to the land of Canaan in such a large group. And you notice it's, it's not just the family, it's also the servants of Pharaoh. Joseph goes, speaks to, Je- to Pharaoh, let my people go. We'll come back, let, me, let us go. And Pharaoh says, yes. Moses will speak those words later. And that Pharaoh, who has long forgotten Joseph, will say, no. And he will be cursed for it. Blessing, uh, blessings are given to those who bless God's people. Curses are given to those who curse them. But Jacob and Joseph, they died Believing God's word. They rested everything on it. And not just themselves. They rested the entire family future. We too are to live out that confident expectation that God will fulfill his word. And not merely privately because neither of these acts are private acts. I mean, both of these men could have simply died and let themselves be buried, knowing, hey, I believe God's going to take us back to the land where he has promised us. I believe that. But both of them give a verbal, public declaration. Jacob wants his family to take him and bury him there. Joseph wants his family to have this regular, visible reminder, we've got to take those bones with us. This is a, a public act, not a private one, not a personal one. We are, in our culture, so used to the idea that someone's faith ought to be kept private. But the very idea that our faith must be kept private is itself a self-contradictory idea. That itself is an, act, an, article, of an, it is an article of faith that someone else has pushed on everyone else, that we should keep our faiths silent. And it's not generally all faiths that are kept silent but only certain ones. Jacob and Joseph, they go public with their faith in God. And brothers and brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, we have a more sure word of testimony 
than did Joseph and Jacob. We have God's own word. They were living in light of the promises that God had made. We live in light of the promises that God has kept. We live in light of the cross. We live in light of Christ. We live in light of His shed blood and of His resurrection. And on the foundation of that, we can certainly believe that when He says He is coming again, He will. Do you believe God's Word? Do you believe, do, you not, do we not believe the words of Jesus when he tells us that he, he knows what we need before we even ask of it? Do we not believe his promise to provide for us in our needs, to tenderly care for us in our pain, to strengthen us in our weakness, to supply wisdom for us in our decisions, to draw near to us with compassion in our tears? Do we not see that God does this? He has promised. Young people, do you not see that God has attached to his commands, to particularly his command to honor and obey your parents? He has attached a particular promise to that. Children, obey your parents, honor your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. It will go well with you. Those of you who long to be married, can you believe that God intends for you good now in your singleness? And that he will supply every good thing at the right time? Do you believe that God's word is good for you when he calls us to purity, men and women? whether in our eating or our drinking or our spending, we give public testimony about where our hope for joy comes from. We often say that we are trusting God, but on the last day, I wonder if our bank and our credit card statements will give a different testimony of where we thought our hope and our joy was going to come from. What about our political hopes and dreams? According to Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking forward to that city whose designer and builder was God. Tim read earlier from us a lengthy section from Hebrews 11 about those who were seeking that better country, that heavenly one. And therefore God was not ashamed to call them their God. But I wonder if we have invested all of our hopes and dreams in this country And we are so anxious about who will be the next president, who will take over Senate, the Congress, who is sitting on the bench. And we forget who is sitting on the throne. Are we so concerned about returning this country to a time from the 1950s or 60s or 70s? Whichever ideal time is ideal in your mind. We're looking back rather than looking forward to the heavenly country that has promised us. We're so interested in making America great again that we, are, we have lost sight of heaven. 
There is something better coming. A righteous king. A just world. Where truth and justice will be proclaimed. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about the country in which we live. Obviously, we we must, we ought to. We ought to pray for the leaders and care and be invested, but not to the point where our hope is here. Growing up, we used to sing that old hymn, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Treasures all laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I'm not sure that that song can be adequately sung in many churches. Our hope is, is, is here. Brothers and sisters, you have a better country. You have a better country. A better home. And that home cannot be robbed. It cannot be diminished in its glory. It was an eternal country where the news is always right. Where God is glorified. And God's people are joyfully and eternally happy in him. Remember God's promises and live confidently in God's word. Just as Joseph and Jacob remind us. Look ahead. That was the testimony of their death. Do not look behind. Look ahead. There is something better coming. Like when you're told to keep your fork at the end of the meal. You know something sweet is coming. Something better is coming. But it's not just the promises of God. It is the the providence of God. Look with me at verse 15. When Joseph, his brothers, saw that their father was dead... You can imagine. So this doesn't just start on the way home. This this starts after the father dies, all through the time of mourning, those 70 days of mourning, the trip up to Canaan, which would have taken weeks and weeks upon this, the, the seven days of mourning there, and then the weeks of trip back. And so sometime in this whole process, the other brothers approach Joseph, and they say, Perhaps Joseph, well, they, they, they talk to themselves first. Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, and notice, they don't have the, the guts to come to him themselves. They send messengers to go to him. They go to him saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, Please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. You see what's happening here? There they are afraid that now Joseph is finally going to get even. He has been holding back for these decades while dad's been alive. But now that dad's dead, uh uh-uh, it's time to get even. You made me, you sold me into slavery. I was put into prison. It's justice time. That's what they're expecting. And, And let's just leave off for a moment whether Jacob really did tell them all of this. 
Let, let's just take their word for it. I think there's reasons we can guess that that may not really genuinely have happened. But let's give them credit and say that it does. They come, they bring this plea before Joseph. And do you see Joseph's response to them? End of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. Does he weep because he feels compassion for him? Because he knows, realizes that for this, yet after he had already verbally forgiven them and provided for them and cared for them, they are still carrying this weight of guilt? Does he weep because he feels sorrow for them that they have not yet rested in his forgiveness? Does he weep because he is moved that they are still, that they still remember and regret how they hurt him? Yes to all of them, yes and more. And what these brothers are doing, they are coming to him, not only asking for forgiveness, they offer themselves up as his servants. We sold you into slavery, hey, rather than you forcing us into it, we are your servants. Do with us whatever you wish. But Joseph not only weeps for them, he, he comforts them in verse 21. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What an amazing reversal of expectations. They're expecting anger. They're expecting the heavy hand, the the righteous hand of justice here. And instead, he weeps when they tell him. And instead, he, he offers them comfort. What a, what a grand reversal of expectations. Friends, if you have never tasted of the grace of God, this is exactly what you can expect when you come humbly before God like this. We come as sinners. We come deserving nothing. We come having sinned against Him who is high and holy. Him who is just and good. We deserve His judgment. We come with the empty hands of faith, O oh God. Forgive. We come expecting to have to be his servants. Let me work for you. Let me work off my, 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 my bad works. Let me try to make up for it. It's not the way it works. God doesn't accept us on the basis of what we might do, of how we might serve him or how good we have been. He accepts us only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. Joseph says to them, I will provide for you. And if you put your faith in Christ, God provides for you. He provides a, a, satisf- a satisfying sacrifice for your sin in Christ. Trust in him. Look to him. And the question is, well, on one level, how often do we not respond this way? Someone comes to us seeking our forgiveness. This isn't how we respond. We're, we, we might eventually forgive them, but we want to let them know how deeply they have hurt us. I forgive you, but that really hurt me. I forgive you, but let me remind you of the five other things you've done over the years that have caused me pain that are similar to this. Joseph's forgiveness isn't like this. It is free. And all of this we find in verse 20 is... 
Joseph is able to forgive like this because he has become convinced of some incredibly deep theological truths. Verse 20. Let's go verse 19 first. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Romans 12 tells us that we are not to seek vengeance one against another, but to leave it in the hands of God. That is God's purview. It is not ours. It is above our pay grade. And Joseph, very simple theological truth, there is a God, we are not him, therefore I do not have the right to seek retribution or vengeance against you for how you have wronged me. But there is something else that motivates him here. Not only is he not going to seek vengeance and justice because he is not God, but rather he is convinced of God's providential rule over all things. Verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Notice he he doesn't say, it, it wasn't you, it was God that did it. That is, he doesn't excuse Joseph, he doesn't excuse his brothers and get them off the hook. No, it wasn't you, it was God who did it. This would make it so that none of us are responsible for any of the actions we take or the decisions that we make. This would make it almost as if God is the puppet master and he pulls the strings and we simply respond and do whatever he wants. We have no will of our own. Joseph also doesn't say, you did evil, but God turned it for good. Some of us think of God's providence like this. That we make actions and we do things and we make, we make choices and we do actions and we do these things and, and that God is simply responding to us. Oh, he, he's done that. Now let me see if I can turn that for their good. But that's not what he says. You meant that. You intended this for evil. This speaks to the very decision-making of their hearts, the very wills, the very ideas that were going through their mind. You wanted this. And you intended this choice for evil. But God intended this for good. This is truth. We, we call it today, theologians will call it compatibilism. That is, God in his sovereignty rules over all things and that we genuinely do make choices. We choose according to whatever we desire and want, but behind all of our acting, behind all of our choosing, all of our desiring, all of our wanting, stands God, who is in some way meticulously sovereign over it all. And this truth, Joseph doesn't learn in a classroom. He doesn't learn on you know, a YouTube channel or over a podcast. He learns it in the school of suffering. His brothers did evil. They wanted to do evil. And yet, even in their choosing action, it wasn't that God was just responding. No, God intended that action all along. But his action was good. The one who holds the knife may intend harm, but 
If that one is a surgeon, we are willing to submit ourselves to the scalpel. This almost sounds like too much doctrine at the end of a long sermon. Like it's useless theology. I remember decades ago talking with a pastor and or having a, a pastor come into the classroom while I was in seminary. And they would bring various pastors in from time to time to give uh, lectures. And this guest pastor was coming in from out of, out of state and while he was giving, he was giving a lecture on preaching and teaching. And in the midst, he said, gentlemen, in your preaching, do not preach doctrine, preach application. God's people don't need doctrine, they need application. And that just seemed totally backwards. Earlier, I had witnessed as an intern in inner city Philadelphia as an intern at a church with a difficult, in, in Juniata Park in Kensington, difficult neighborhoods to say the least. I'd witnessed a youth pastor every Friday night. They had a, a lock-in. And that lock-in was meant to encourage kids to not be out on the streets. It was just dangerous. It was not good for them. This little church basement was packed with teenagers. And they would be there till about midnight, in which we would take them home or send them home, or they would walk home. And I'll never forget, for while we would play games, while we would spend time in prayer, for over an hour, the youth pastor at this church in this rough neighborhood with often high school kids who were at a third grade level of reading and writing, he taught doctrine. And I was amazed that these kids, they were hungry for it. Many of them barely reading, writing well, trying their best to take notes. Many of them were coming from broken homes. Many of them were coming, and as they walked to church that night, they were trying to avoid those places where they knew the gangs were. They were trying to step over It would step over needles on the sidewalk. The challenges for them to come to church were intense. And I'll never forget that summer when that pastor began to unpack the providence of God. And you would think in a place like that, that would be a doctrine, a teaching that would be unwelcome. And yet that is exactly what those kids were hungry for. There in their broken world, God was still in control. And here, we find it true for us as well. What we need to remember is that God rules for our good, that our mistakes, our sin, though they are our own, and though we are guilty of it. For God does not cause us to sin. Yet God intends all things and works all things in some mysterious way for our good and his glory. 
All the perfections of God are aimed at bringing these things to pass. All of God's power, all of His wisdom, all of His goodness, all of His holiness and love is bent toward us. And He will use our past with all of its red markings, all of its failures, all of its mistakes, he will use our past in ways we cannot imagine. Just as Joseph reminds us of his brothers, you meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph's intent there is that his brothers learn in their humility to praise God for his providential goodness in turning their horrible sin of selling their brother into slavery for the salvation of God's people. He will use everything in our lives for our good and his glory. Our weaknesses Our temptations, they secure our highest good. Paul desired that he would be let off from the thorn in the flesh, and it is exactly through the thorn in the flesh that he experiences the strength of the grace of God. He will use our poverty to secure our highest good. He will use our waiting, our longing to secure our highest good. He will use those wonderful and good things for our highest good. Friends, the promises of God are there before us to call us to trust in Him, to call us to follow Him, and to sacrifice everything for His name's sake to attain that which he promises. And the providence of God reminds us that attaining those promises is not dependent entirely on us. The providence of God reminds us that we can trust in him not only to fulfill his promises, but to fulfill it in our own failures, in our own weakness. Brothers and sisters, Genesis ends reminding us to reach forward for the promises of God and to cling in humility and joy to the providence of God. Let us trust and obey him in all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your promises to us are indeed immense and immensely good. We confess that we have too often neglected them, too often forgotten them, too often allowed our hearts to wander, to be engaged by the things of this world. And we confess that we have often along the way forgotten that you are providentially guiding and directing and ruling over all things. Oh God, we pray that you would give us faith to live in this world for you. For it is broken. 
and it desperately needs the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would help our lives to match the witness of our lips. That those around us may hear the gospel and see our good works giving glory to you, our Father. Oh, Lord, do all this in us and through us and in spite of us. For your glory, by your grace, in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.